I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yeah. Hope everybody's paying attention today because we have a friend calling in from Los Angeles. And her name is Stephanie Wilder Taylor. And she has a new book out called Drunkish. She's a comedian. She's a TV personality. So I want to welcome Stephanie to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. So it's a very interesting subject, drunkish. Can you tell me a little bit about what your passion was behind this book? Sure. I quit drinking over 14 years ago. This May, it will be 15 years. And I was somebody who always felt like alcohol was just fun. And I wasn't somebody who had a, a really tragic story, who, you know, was getting DUIs or got divorced or lost my kids or went to any of it. So it was very easy for me to go, well, I'm a comedian, so I drink. All comedians drink. And, you know, and then when I became a mom, it was very, very stressful. So, of course, I became part of the mommy wine culture and enjoyed my wine. And I, I never thought it was a problem until it it was a problem. I quit drinking, like I said, May 22nd, 2009. And I've been sober for a long time. I'm also an author. I'd already written a lot of memoirs. Um, I became a little bit known for quitting drinking because my first book was called Sippy Cups Are Not for Chardonnay. And I joked a lot about drinking. In case anybody thinks that that was a book about sobriety, it wasn't. That was a book making a lot of jokes about how much I drank. Um, in fact, if you look at the Amazon reviews, some of them were like, you sound like an alcoholic, which would make me very defensive and angry. These people don't know what they're talking about. They can't take a joke. You know, looking back, I, I was being funny about drinking. I was just making a lot of jokes. It was kind of in the zeitgeist, moms and their wine, rosé all day, all that still kind of is. Anyway, the point is I'd already been known as an author. And then when I quit drinking, because I'd been known for writing these books where I talked a lot about drinking, it was in all the titles. I I got some press, not unwanted press, because I quit drinking. So I decided after all this time of being sober, like, why not write another book and make it about the process of getting sober? So, you know, a lot of books about sobriety, they call it Quitlet. There's a ton of books about quitting drinking, a lot of memoirs about it. To me, a lot, most of them, the ones that I found, I, I, don't, I can't say all of them, are pretty earnest. You know, they're dark stories. They're... Um, very dark admissions. And I wanted to write something that was relatable to people that are maybe thinking that they might have a drinking problem, but like me, feeling like, oh, it might not be that bad. I wanted to write a book for those people. And I also want it to be funny. So, mm -hmm. you know, being having a stand up background and being a humorist, I decided that it was a needed book, some like gotcha. much needed levity to the world of sobriety. I have a lot of friends that drink and I have, I drink wine, uh, drank tequila, uh, stopped drinking tequila, still drink a little bit of uh, wine now, but I feel like my body has pushed me. I'm a clairsentient, so I do things, uh, you know, I feel a lot of things. I can feel a room, I can feel people, I can f get in people's heads. And, you know, when you apply the spiritual aspect of this, when I don't drink, the, the my sensibilities are way, way more heightened. 
Can you talk to that about drinking and not drinking? And there are certain things that are, when you stop drinking that are not discussed, you know, how it really affects you in turn eternally. It's kind of a surfacey conversation, you know, the horror stories, this or that. But when you think about from a sensibility standpoint, could you see a change in yourself? in your sensibilities and in and, and how you live life because we live life through vibrations and things we do with our life affect those vibrations did you did you recognize anything like that with yourself I think that's such a good question and I'm not a woo woo person at all um I am in a spiritual program that helps me to not drink but what you bring up is rarely talked about except among other people that don't drink and it's so important to say that a big reason why a lot of people drink is to not be present, right? Is to kind of like numb out, blank out. And when you stop drinking, it's uncomfortable at first to be completely present and to, you know, I remember the feeling of early sobriety and like just sitting with my husband on the couch, like watching TV felt hard to do because I wasn't used to that kind of to being truly intimate with another person where you're just both like I liked to drink to numb it all out. And a lot of that I think comes from childhood and, you know, wanting to not be present and not feel. But when you start feeling, although it's unfamiliar at first, it's the biggest gift I think of, of quitting drinking is the feeling of like being fully present in my life with my kids. I'm a better friend. I'm a better, much better parent. You know, I'm a better wife. It's I'm more accessible and I'm more attuned like you were just saying to people's feelings and people's needs. And I'm not so afraid of those feelings. So it's helped me tremendously in ways that, you know, I thought I was drinking for that opposite effect. I didn't think mm -hmm. that I was going to have to deal with that or that I wanted to deal with that. All I knew when I quit drinking was I don't want to drink anymore because I'm unsafe and I make bad decisions when I drink every time, not every time, but at some point, always, you know, every time I rationalize and I go, I'm fine. I'm just going to have a couple glasses of wine tonight and that's it. All of those promises I would make myself, I would always break them and it, it makes you feel bad about yourself. But like I said, I was drinking because, for the sole purpose of not wanting to feel and that is the biggest thing that I love about being sober. And I, and I want to take this a little bit deeper. I don't know if you know anything about me, but I've been in the comedy business, I don't know, eight years. I discovered a comedian, took him to Just for Laughs, and, and within two years from the trailer park, and that's a that's a whole, whole nother story. But when you think about the personalities, especially in entertainment, mm -hmm. and when I think about people's feelings, and, I, and you think about the Western world and how things are described or what they think things are based on feelings, I know that a talented person is a different different make makeup they have a different non-conscious and when they come into the world they have very very high sensibilities and sometimes those sense if you don't understand those sensibilities coming into the world to a to a, a comedian or, or, or actress whoever it is may find certain things whether it's a drug whether it's a drink or whatever that almost makes them feel normal did you ever yes. experience anything like that Yes, but you know what? Not quite with alcohol, Ex except for sure when I first started drinking at like 14, I did find it had a magical, like, lower the inhibitions, make me feel 
a little bit buzzed, relaxed. I'd always felt very anxious and I didn't even know I was experiencing anxiety. I thought this is just how people feel. It's life is suffering, you know? And when I first, 14 years old, was like, oh, this is how I can feel. This is amazing. It's very hard to keep in the buzz. Once you're, you know, drinking a lot, it's hard to stay buzzed. You always overshoot the mark. But I will tell you, first time I took Xanax, like a dose of Xanax for that was really prescribed to me for postpartum anxiety. I was like, oh my gosh, this is how I feel normal. I didn't feel high. I didn't feel sleepy. I felt like, oh, this is how the other half lives. This is just, what an amazing discovery. The worst news was that I had to get off Xanax when I quit drinking. Uh-huh. Interesting. I mean, I'm so glad I did because, you know, I've learned to achieve that that normal feeling that other people feel without it's the long way. You know, Xanax was a nice shortcut. I really enjoyed it. But yeah, that's how I felt normal. Well, I, I think that's an understanding, right? Because, you know, talented people have very, very high sensibilities. And I, I, I believe everything is about sensory. And sometimes talented people have um, a sensory that is focused in one area, right? So when, when your sensory is focused in one area and you dive deep on into that and you double down on that, it creates a, a an unbalance uh, through the rest of the body. And I think that like education and knowledge and understanding that would be very, very important to, you know, some talented people in the world. Because I think, I think when you reverse engineer talent, uh, instead of trying to downplay those sensibilities, maybe we upplay them, understand what they are, because maybe there's some attributes there that could help humanity, whatever that may be. Because I think it's, because right now I think it's looked at the wrong way, I guess is what I'm saying. Does that make any sense? You're saying that that deeper level of sensitivity is what some people need to create? No, I'm just saying a, a lot of very talented people have high sensibilities. Right. What I'm saying, how those sensibilities are recognized in society today by our medical system, how they're recognized, they are almost uh, put down. Like, you're not supposed to feel that way. This is this. This is that. You know, we're gonna, you, know you need to do this because you feel this way. You need to do this because you feel this way. What I'm saying is, instead of trying to... Uh, I guess, downplay those sensibilities. Maybe it's an upplay and you dive deeper into them to what these are, are to create knowledge behind what it really is for you as a person because everybody's different and because we take these absolutes that blanket our system sometimes, they blanket our system that don't work for everybody. Does that, does that kind of explain it a little more? Yeah, I think so. Makes sense. It is, it is pretty deep and I haven't really thought about that. I mean, do you feel like that for your own life? Well, just being an entertainment business, understanding how talented people are. But understanding... you're, in, you're a creator as well. Yeah, I'm a creator as well. I mean, yeah, because I think if you don't have that knowledge, you understand what those feelings are. That's where you go to drugs. That's where you go to alcohol. Right. Those feelings in our body are supposed to be signals. We're supposed to understand what those signals are. And I don't think that's ever been explored. Types of art. But you could look at like writing, you know, stand up. Uh, I don't know about other things. I, I can't carry a tune, so I can't speak to like being a musician. But I am imagining from the stories I know about musicians, when you are a creative person, a lot of times having a slightly tortured personality goes along with it, right? But we've become 
very accepting of the fact that like, oh, tortured artists. And a lot of people feel, I'll speak for myself, um, but I was very concerned that if I, you know, stopped being able to drink, I wasn't going to be able to access, you know, it's kind of the opposite. You, mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I'm sort of responding to what you're putting yeah. out there. But like, I thought that those things went hand in hand. I thought like, oh, I have all these feelings. I'm so sensitive. I'm, an, I'm an artist, you know, how am I going to be able to create if I don't have access to it by use of like drugs or alcohol? But I did. It, it's better without it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that my writing got worse. Well, it should get what I'm saying too. It should get better. You know, if, I, I think, think it if you, because I it think it takes a while though. You got to adjust. This is why so many people have trouble getting sober. It's hard. It's hard. You you feel like you're going to lose a lot. People don't realize that when people are addicts and their life is kind of built around this thing that they think is medicating them, and they think I can, I'm not going to be able to do any of the things I did if I'm not drinking. And I think a lot of people, you know, addiction is really misunderstood because from the outside it looks like, well, why don't they just stop drinking? Because It's ruining their life. Their life is going to be so much better. But for people, especially for people that are creative or sensitive or have all these feelings, these are a lot of the people I've met in sobriety. We all understand that like, that's a big ask to stop doing the thing that we think helps us function and do our jobs and, and keep our marriages. And you know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. it's a, it's really scary to, it's like letting go of the life raft. You don't know what's going to happen. You have to just have faith that you're going to be okay. Only because if you know other people who have been through the same thing, you know, I have this other thing about pocket narratives because I think absolutes don't work and pocket narratives drive society. So if that pocket narrative was different for those people in your group that you were talking about just now, and it told him to maybe dive into that, you know, uh, maybe they become a superhero. You, you know what I mean? Maybe they be, maybe they tap into something that they didn't know they had that was even more, you know, gave them more ability is what I'm saying. That's when you dive into those things and, and not try to downplay them and say it's a problem. If you just looked at it from a completely organic standpoint because of things that have hampered talented people, there could be some things we haven't tapped into yet. But we live in, you know, such a self-help society where one of the things that we all do, I feel, is put ourselves down and think about what needs to be improved instead of sometimes saying like, well, how does being a sensitive person help me? Or how does being a sensitive person, you know what I mean? Instead of being Mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm so oversensitive. Oh, I get reactive. Oh, I take things the wrong way. How do we switch that around and go, well, that also makes me more creative. It makes me more empathetic. It makes me um, think deeper about the world and people's problems. So, I mean, I believe that like, let's not spend all our time going like, what's wrong with me that I should improve and maybe uh, get into a little acceptance of things that are our personality. I feel like maybe you're saying that. hundred percent. I have my own language, so you may have to interpret for me because a lot of people don't. (laughs) (laughs) Because a lot of people don't understand what I'm talking about. I mean, I'm a very, very deep thinker. These, These are just things I think about when you because when you understand the rationale behind those points, it, it makes a lot of sense, you know, and because and, uh, and, I'm on this big thing about uh, if you really want me to get deep here, because I've, I've, I've always said this thing about being preventative. When you're preventative and you have knowledge behind that prevention, you can achieve a lot more. And I always said that us as a society, we feed off what we see. Okay, so when we feed off what we see, we 
continue to create opinions and controversy. But if we create a new environment with a new idea and we're out front, we're preventative, we lead, you eliminate those opinions and controversy. So then when I, and I always used to say that, I don't know where that came from. I just, where did he say it? That's just me. I'm always trying to dig deep in humanity. I'm always trying to help humanity. But when I looked at that even deeper, it came between two things, the quantum field and the Newtonian theory, theory of relativity. If you look at the Newtonian, if you look at the Newtonian. John, I'm just letting you know that I did not go to college. So (laughs) know that. Continue if you dare, but I did not go to college, so uh, well, you would, I barely graduated I, I, high school, so you're already losing me, but I'm listening. In the Newtonian theory, uh-huh. is all about reactive. We're all reactive. Okay. So if we are reactive on something that's already happened, we're behind the curve. That's how we live. And pretty much everything, every structure in society is set up that way. Our medical system, our government, everything already happens. Then we go to try to go fix it. Instead of being preventative on the quantum field side, being preventative, being ahead of the curve, following creation, having a new idea, you eliminate all that. You really do. I mean, I'm not going to get too crazy, but I didn't have books in college either myself. Come, These rationales come through. I have Native American on both sides of my family. Mm-hmm. It's it's somewhat of a spiritual. Can you put any of it in layman's terms? Do you have like an example of that, of something that would happen that you get in front of so that you're not reacting to it, but you're, are you, are you just being in tune with the world so you can predict that something's going to happen and then you well, prepare just, for just it? Like, just like, just like, all right, we're going to, we're going to use this with childhood. Okay. A lot, a lot of creatives had trauma in their childhood. So when we're born, something that's not talked about is the non-conscious. When we're born, you have no emotions. Take out emotions is our non-conscious. And science stops at the non-conscious. They eliminate philosophy and intuitiveness, right, first of all. And and okay. the problem with that is, and why our minds have been hijacked for, the, for however long, is that that's one-third of law of attraction. So a non-conscious is born. They're born into an environment. Okay, you're a person. You have no feelings yet. You're a person. They're born into an environment. Based on what innately is in that non-conscious, you can predict what they would do based on the environment they're in. So if you understand that when you start, that's the beginning, right? When you understand and that's the beginning and you start going through life as you as these emotions come into play, this is where your subconscious is being programmed. And you get to a certain point in life, get to a certain point, you start responding to things with your unconscious bias. And that's the, you know, you're responding based on the trauma you experienced. Based on this, you know, whatever your experience is, you start responding to things. That's where the unconscious bias comes into play. And then, you know, that's why a lot of human beings can't can't get to consciousness. So what I'm saying in that situation, first of all, if science recognizes the the non-conscious the right way and let philosophy and intuitiveness play a part in that makeup, because that's one third of law of attraction. And people, the human, you know, society understood that, you know, when someone's born, what happens and how they are programmed, even though you still experience trauma, even though you may have some downfalls, even though you may have this, if you understand that information, 
as a human being and, and, and understand that in real time. That is a preventative measure for you to be able to handle each of those situations better because you have the knowledge behind it as you go through life. That's a, that's a quantum field. That's what God wants us to do at the end of the day. They don't want the problem to be created. But we're not going to teach you anything about that. We're just going to let the problems, we're going to create all the problems. Now we're going to run back and try to put a Band-Aid on it and fix it and explain it mm -hmm. and monetize it. That's the difference. I can apply that to anything and everybody. I mean, you're, talk, you're talking about some stuff that I've never really thought about before in that way. Well, except one time, but I'd done a lot of coke and then I smoked some pot and then I had <laughs> some really deep thoughts and I wrote them all down and maybe it had was something like that. But uh, what, oh, what got you into thinking about this kind of stuff? I have no idea, to be honest with you. Uh-huh. Not know, drug I'm induced? A, no, I'm a natural healer. You know, oh, uh -huh. I'm a natural healer. Uh, I was always the partier, the crazy guy. And I always knew sh when I was in L.A., I knew shamans and I knew all these naturists. And I didn't pay attention to them for a long part of the time I hung around them. But a lot of my celebrity fr friends were in that circle. And I never paid attention to it. And then mm -hmm. later in life, when I started feeling certain things, then I, I realized I had Native American on both sides of my family you know, different things started to happen. These rationales started coming through. It's basically quantum physics. You know, it's basically what it is. It's, it's just information that's coming through that I just, like when I talk to someone like you, I like to mention those things just to try to make people think. Because if mm -hmm. we apply this, let's, let's apply this to your life. Okay. They say comedy comes from darkest places. Can you speak to any of that on how you grew up? My father, my biological father was a comedian. He was kind of famous in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And so I would just had humor in my family. But then I did grow up with quite a bit of chaos. And I found that I could use humor to deal with that. Like mm -hmm. I laughter was probably my first drug. I loved to laugh. I loved to be made to laugh, you know. So definitely I drew humor from darker situations, but I wasn't, it wasn't all dark, but definitely mm -hmm. having childhood that I had, I think made me more of a risk taker, more like craving excitement, craving intensity. Mm -hmm. I'll say that. And then humor, you know, I was like a naturally funny person. So fast forward. Mm -hmm. Now you wrote a book about not drinking drunkish. If, uh -huh. if you're looking for a good book out there. Yeah. Uh, check that out. I think it's a very, I think that's very relatable to millions of people in this day and time. Um, so now, now looking back at that, if you understood how you were being affected in your life, if you understood that a hundred percent, because when right. you're in that, when you're in that situation, you have no idea, but if you had the knowledge behind under, under, I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We keep a lot of emotions bundled up inside in life, and sometimes we got to talk to people. I witnessed the benefits with my own two eyes. I have a close friend that was struggling with depression and felt like she had no one she could consistently talk to because of her busy schedule. She was matched with a therapist through BetterHelp. After several months of sessions, I've seen a tremendous change in her personality and in her life. If you're needing therapy and and want to get some of those things off your chest, it's entirely online and designed to conveniently work around your schedule and empower you to be the best version of yourself. Just fill out a questionnaire and they will align you with the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash unimpressed today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash unimpressed. Standing that, it may give you, and it gave you a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Would you have handled certain things differently based on where you're at now? Sure, but I don't know that I could have known that because, you know, it's like the frog in the boiling water. It starts out cold, warms up. Pretty soon the, you're boiling and you don't understand why you're in so much pain. So I I don't know that I would have handled things differently. I was in my family of origin. I was living my life. I was pretty miserable, I think. And then I was doing what I could not to like feel or, you know, be so sensitive to, you know, I was repeating patterns. I think it was unfortunately or fortunately having something happen enough that made me want to quit drinking. And then only now can I look back when some people quit drinking, they do a lot of work around it, right? So some of the work of being sober and becoming sober is a lot of looking at your past and figuring out what those patterns are and finding new ways to relate to things. And I think that's where I can understand what you're saying, where it's like, oh, well, now looking back, I can see that this was always my reaction to this, but that always leads to pain or misunderstanding or making a situation worse. So maybe now that I know where this, where these reactions came from, it's like, Here's a good example. I was criticized a lot as a child. So getting older, I became very allergic to criticism. You know, you don't want to criticize me because I will be very defensive and I will tell you why you're wrong about me. And a lot of that was fear, right? It's fear Mm -hmm. because it makes you feel bad. I won't let you finish, but that speaks to exactly what I'm saying. That, Mm -hmm. That program, like that programming was part of your life that puts you in that specific point. So if you under if you could rewrite that program and understood what that was doing at the time before it happened, you may handle those situations differently is what I'm saying. So go go I guess what I'm saying is I don't know I I guess it's I don't know how I would have done that as a kid, but what I can do as an adult is go, why do I have this big reaction when somebody wants to give me constructive feedback. Why do I become a little kid again and go, well, they're wrong. Well, screw them. Well, I don't have to listen to that, you know, and, and be defensive when sometimes, you know, and you learn through doing through part of Mm -hmm. the program that I'm in, we apologize when we do something wrong. Well, it's really hard. Like the first time you apologize when you don't even necessarily fully feel in your body that you did something wrong, but somebody's having a reaction to something that you did. And then you have to own 
own that behavior. And then guess what? The world doesn't explode. You don't feel terrible. Like you feel bad. The other person goes, you say, oh, I'm sorry if I said that thing that hurt your feelings, even though in your head, you're like, I don't know why that person got their feelings hurt by what I said. I obviously didn't mean it like that. But when you say that, and then the other person says, oh, no problem. It's fine. Thank you for apologizing. It creates mm-hmm. this positive thing. And then you start to realize, oh, this, this thing that I do where I get defensive right away is not serving me. So perhaps I can pause the next time somebody says something that I don't like, I can pause and take it in and then Mm -hmm. decide later, was that person being an asshole or was I just being sensitive and reactive? So Mm -hmm. in that way, I think as an adult and as a sober person, I can rewrite some of my, um, you know, those patterns. If this was a narrative that everybody in society knew, you know, from everybody that's alive from zero to a hundred you, you mm-hmm. know, if they knew this information and the knowledge was structured the right way. Society could be a little different and things could be handled a little different. That's a preventative measure. You, you know what I mean? Instead of just letting these things go down the road and then we put a Band-Aid on it because we wanted to capitalize on it. You know, so to me, it's like, you know, if you understand the quantum field, there's one quantum field. There's one God. There's one answer. Sensibilities sensibilities are are light or dark you know discovery you know wherever you land on discovery in life could go to light or dark it's just like when i think about oppenheimer you know they try to portray him as being this smart person he wasn't that smart you know if he really looked at things the right way because you know he didn't need to split an atom we don't need to Mm -hmm. manipulate things that don't need to be manipulated we need to understand things from creation if we understand things from creation we get to the answers quicker and we utilize those resources the right way because there's two mindsets in the world there's a discovery mindset and then there's a creator's mindset Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's just the way I look at things. I don't know. This is this is what I try to do on my show. It's like, how can I make people think more and how can I relate it to their own? You know, how can it improve things for them? You know, making them think, you know, does that make any sense? Yeah. Do I need to Venmo you? For this? <laughs> is it PayPal? Do you do both? <laughs> right. I like that. That's pretty good. <laughs> so you got to write this you... all in a book, John. <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm just trying to get somebody to understand me. Uh huh. That's a that's a very basic human need, right? To just feel understood. Yeah. Well, just to translate what I'm saying, because people mm-hmm. tell me they're like, "You're you're deep. You're way out there." We gotta we gotta make this. I had a uh, this tarot card reader who writes the tarot card section for Cosmo. She's like John. She says you gotta make he's gotta make this simple. It's very powerful what you're saying, but you gotta make this simple where where everybody can understand it. Yeah. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's what I'm trying to figure out. Do you believe are you psychic? I can tap into people, yeah. A little bit, yeah. But really do you think that are do you think that a lot of psychics are frauds? I mean, do you believe 100%. in any of like these people that have TV shows where they're like mediums? Do you believe in any of those people? There's some that are real, some that are fake. I interviewed a guy that had I mean, there's only one guy that had this in front of his name, but it said master. He was a master mm-hmm. and ranked in the top 20 in the world, most spiritual people. And he, to me, he wasn't real. Because the difference between me and everybody else, I feel, when I talk, what I talk about, I feel daily. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have energy coming through my hand daily, you know, and I, ha- and I have these sensibilities that sometimes I have to manage 
the right way because it can completely take you out of the whole process. So I, okay. everything I talk about, I physically feel. I'm thinking of a number between one and 10. I believe that if you are really in tune with somebody, and this is no, no slam on our connection. I think it's good. But like, you know, when you're very close to somebody and um, like I used to do this with best friends at slumber parties. I could do it with my daughter when she was little. If I was like laying in her bed with her before she goes to sleep. I really believe that you can get on the same mental plane and transmit numbers and colors. And like I've done it where it's like the person gets it right on on every try. So there's something to it, right? There's something to being psychic, but yeah. I get so caught up because I want to believe like some of these psychics and, you know, then you watch these debunking videos about them and it's so disappointing. How many of them are fraudsters? Yeah. It's it, well, that it goes back to sensibilities, you know, and their vibrations, if their vibration, like I can't pick out, <clears throat> sometimes I can't be poignant with things, but I can tell people who they are. You know what I'm saying? I can give right. them a definition, but I can't be poignant with answers. I understand that. Maybe I, maybe I could be poignant with with specifics uh, if I dialed into it more. But that that speaks to the quantum field as well. We're all connected. You know, we are all connected, and if we if we could figure out how to utilize that, you know, there there's there's really something to that because. I, I give the example of the holidays. You know how when you feel during the holidays, you feel upbeat, you feel a spirit, you feel good energy, you feel f positivity. Everybody feels it because everybody is more positive during that period of time. So, but they don't realize that this is, if we could carry that mentality year around, everybody could feel that year around. I know that is such a good point. But then again, it's also a little bit exhausting. I think you know, we build up to this thing and we put expectations too on these holidays, right? And so you're like trying to please everybody and you're wanting to make sure they love their gifts. And then you really enjoy the hell out of this one day. And then you're like, okay, back to regular mm -hmm. life. So mm -hmm. could we keep up that level of holiday intensity all year long? I have this other rationale about uh, negativity. I think mm -hmm. it's more about just a positive mindset. I made this comment one time about Netflix because Netflix algorithm is is based on sensibilities and and sensibilities are what people want to see. And I said, I bet you that seventy percent of Netflix's programming is dark. And I ended up, I thought it was more, but because because we perpetuate so much negativity. That's what people want. That's what the law of attraction is. And that's what people want to see because you know, that's, that's what's perpetuated. A, that is a really good point. And a lot of us, not you probably, but me and a lot of people I know are very into the true crime genre. And sometimes mm -hmm. I have to, if I listen to a bunch of it in a row, I'm like, why am I doing this? This is so negative. It's it. And it really can affect my mood and it can affect my outlook on the world. And sometimes I have to kind of swear it off for a while. And I have sworn off the really dark stuff, the, you know, murder porn. No way. I don't, I don't listen to it anymore. I don't want to, I don't care for anything that has to do with like serial killers. I'm more like psychological stories of learning about why people do the things they do and how they tick. But I have to, I have become really aware of how listening to too much of something that's dark can affect my moods, make me irritable, make me feel suspicious of people, right? I'm trying mm -hmm. to be more, more, um, positive. Yeah. hundred, hundred percent. I mean, I can't, I used to go watch horror movies. I can't watch them now because I literally based on the soundtrack and the visual, 
my body can feel it's like tingling just going all over me like i can feel it i can't do it i can't do it and the power of the mind is a big thing i mean i didn't get into the penile gland but the, your god's data center is the penile gland so if you mm -hmm. want more sensory if you want more sensory take out fluoride out of your whole system you know go away from anything that has fluoride in it because the fluoride really? yeah fluoride calcifies your penile gland right so most people's penile gland is calcified so you can if you decalcify your penile gland and there's ways you can do that from eye drops from the amazon food you eat and so forth your sensory will improve interesting but then how do you keep the cavities away i, I think that's a myth people getting cap that fluoride, prevents fluoride cavities yeah i think that's a i think that's a myth i mean there's only two countries that allow fluoride in their country in the whole world i think really? that, it's us in sweden or somebody yeah no, but no other countries allow that, allow fluoride in, into their I country. Know, but think about other countries where they have really bad teeth. Maybe that's it, why. I don't, I don't think it has anything to do with it. You don't? Mm -mm. You think it's just a coincidence? I think it's something that's been, it's a pocket narrative that's been sold to us. I think there's other ways that you can have healthy teeth. I don't know. I don't, you know, I can't tell you exactly what they, they are, but I think there's other ways. Got it. Just like the calorie. You know, I've taught the guys, yo at Cambridge. The calorie is a pocket narrative that was created to sell food. And huh. it doesn't mean anything. So when you look at the board, look at the board who puts together the calorie system. It's the meat industry. It's the milk industry. It's all these industries trying to, you know, monetize their industry through this calorie system. Calorie is a bullshit. What do Same you thing. Use? What about fat? What's that? What about fats? Fats? Yeah, like, you know, when you look at the label of something and it tells you the calorie amount and the and the fat amount, the fat content? I don't I don't know. I don't look at that. I look at that more foundational too because if you if you take a if you take a pharmaceutical grade protein and, and that hits your system first, a high, very high protein, whatever it is, that puts your muscles in anabolic state. So once you put your muscles in anabolic state, that burns fat. Then whatever you bring in, whether it's fruit, vegetables, I've kind of explained it like this, superfoods, whatever it is, you take that in to cleanse and heal the body after you put your muscles in an anabolic state. So I didn't want to get off on a tangent there, but what do you think about comedy today and, and thought processes in your world of the, the comedy business? That's an interesting question. I still enjoy comedy. Uh, my kids are really into comedy, watch like SNL. I like um, certain things. I think that it's gotten really polarized. I think that there are a lot of sort of these anti-woke, anti-cancel you know, cancel culture people that are no longer being funny. They're just ranting about how they can't say the things they want to say. And that is such a turnoff to me. Um, thank you for giving me a platform to <laughs> speak my <laughs> mind about that. I think yeah. when people want to just be really negative and punch down and then get mad when they so-called get canceled, even though they're not getting canceled, because many comedians that have gone like super extreme in a direction of like, I want to be able to say what I want to say, like, then say it, then say the things you want to say. Nobody cares. Like nobody's you're it's most comedians are not cancelable. So I've gotten really disappointed with how many people I used to think were so funny that have just gotten obsessed with whether or not they're canceled and that they're not allowed to say the things they want to say and more enamored with comedians that are still just like being funny. Like Patton Oswalt is my favorite comedian. Like 
He's not going to get canceled because he's just a freaking funny guy who's talking about himself and talking about life. You know what I'm saying? I don't like these soapbox, like, I'm not allowed to say anything. Even what I'm saying right now is going to get me canceled. I hate I hate the whole cancel culture thing. And I think comedy's gone far afield of what it used to be, which is just being funny. That, that speaks to a pure source, you know, because I think, I think comedians got to be authentic to themselves. They got to tell a story through their own life that's, re, you know, that's relatable to the masses. And I think that's it. I think, I think it goes again to what you said. I think society has manipulated that in a way, you know, because if you saw, if you saw Eddie Murphy raw, you know, if they released Eddie Murphy raw today, what do you think would happen to Eddie Murphy? Funny, my husband and I were just talking about that the other day. And well, here's the problem. Uh, raw was very, um, you know, homophobic. I mean, there are a lot of jokes that were, that were punching down. Now, do I, do I necessarily think that Eddie Murphy is like a homophobic person? No, I think that at the time where society was like, that was a thing to make fun of. Like that was, funny. And I think Eddie Murphy was like a genius. And I remembered feeling like my life was changed by watching that special. Would I enjoy it now? No, I would find a lot of parts of it offensive. Would I try to cancel him for something that he said in the 80s? Of course not, you know, but I think that like we can do better, like a as we progress as a society and realize that when we um, punch down, it, we're just making life harder for the people that we're punching down on. And, you know, the further we progress and go, well, that's just not really an acceptable, like, why do I want to make people laugh by berating other people. But I think that the best comedians make that progression naturally. Like, I don't think that today Eddie Murphy would do a special where he was going off on like homosexual people. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, mm -hmm. so the people that are still doing it and like, but I have the right to do that. That's who I, that's who I'm annoyed by. Yeah. It's like, you have the right to do it, but like, please don't. <laughs> There's yeah. other things that you can make fun of. You can um, get the low hanging fruit or you can like challenge yourself to actually be funny. How about like uh, one of my favorite funny guys is Red Fox. He had some important stuff to say and he was super funny. And like, I think Red Fox today would do just as well. And you and you forget about uh, uh, Steve Martin. You know, if you look at Steve Martin's stand up when he was in his prime, what do you think about a Steve Martin today? in his prime. Steve Martin would still kill today. Steve Martin is a brilliant, brilliant man. And, you know, a very deep thinker and really funny, but also just really silly, you know, that his mm -hmm. comedy was never like hurting anybody. I grew up on that, his album. Remember, Let's Get Small and mm -hmm. Comedy Isn't Pretty. I mean, there was, there, I, yeah, I mean, so many things that I think still hold up, would hold up today. If I, if you re-listen to that. So do you have any thoughts about yourself in the comedy world in the next couple of years? Well, I don't do stand-up anymore. I stopped doing stand-up when my twins were born. I, the last time I did stand-up, I was pregnant, massively pregnant with twins. And uh, I made a little joke on stage that you could actually find on YouTube where I said, I'm a little worried because, um... I might be pregnant. I was hugely pregnant. Yeah. It was like, you know, August, September. And I said, I, you know, I, I was supposed to get my period in February. <laughs> and nice. then I made a joke like that. But I never really loved doing stand up. And once I had twins, I was kind of done with stand up comedy itself. But I mean, I write humorous books. I host podcasts that are humorous. I have a very long running podcast called For Crying Out Loud with my co-host Lynette Carolla. And, um, I get to express my comedy 
through podcasting. I have another one called Board AF, where we just tell stories. My my um, co-host, Cecily Nobler, we you, was a stand-up. We knew each other from stand-up. And we tell stories about back in the day, and we talk about news. And so I get my fix from podcasting and writing. Would you would you tour the podcast? Oh uh, yeah, I have done I have done live dates with the podcast. Super fun. I love that. Podcasting I, is just a lot easier than doing stand up. A lot easier and requires much less memorization. Drunkish. Where do we find Drunkish at? Uh anywhere. It comes out very soon. Um and you can get it anywhere. Anywhere you get books. What's your ultimate goal for the book, do you think? You know, I hope it helps some people. I hope that it's relatable. And that anybody that's thinking about quitting drinking or silently questioning their drinking and wants to hear somebody's story that's going to be, it's just brutally honest. I, um, that's how I write. No filter. I'm going to tell you like all the thoughts I had. A lot of the book is me rationalizing my drinking and I hope it helps somebody, you know, feel like, oh, this person, I relate to this person's story. And I hope it gives people hope that like my life this many years after quitting drinking is is great i'm super happy i'm relaxed can you right. see it on me can you feel <laughs> yeah, it you look great Don? you look you're glowing a little bit you look fresh you look you look good i'm you know, happy you, and relaxed yeah. and i'm pleased with life and i don't miss drinking so i hope i hope that i give somebody else that same hope where's your family from where are you from originally uh i was born in new york but I mostly have lived here in L.A. Mostly lived in L.A. Mm -hmm. So coming up with your dad being a comedian, what'd your mm -hmm. mom do? She was a psychiatric nurse. Interesting. So growing up in the kind of the comedy world, what do you have any little stories that, you know, was a life changer or something that really stuck out with you that kind of maybe gave you some guidance in life? Anything that stuck out. Uh, any I mean, I would say that the bombing on stage is such a life lesson, you know, being raised, my father, when I was a kid was on TV a lot. So I only saw like the successful, you know, I was a mm -hmm. kid, he was already successful and on Merv Griffin show and the Dean Martin and like killing it. So it was very shocking to me starting out in stand up that like you could have a show where you do not get a single laugh. And that builds some resiliency, I have to say, I think that withstanding going through that, thinking that that's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. I remember thinking the worst possible thing that could happen is if not one person laughs through my whole set. That will tell me I'm unworthy, will never be successful, I'm fooling myself and, and all the things. And I think that going through that, obviously many, many times I've bombed. And coming out the other side and being able to do it again and then have a great set has taught me a lot about life and, you know, resiliency. Well, I'm, I'm just looking at the name. Now, who was your dad? Oh, you would not have heard of him, but his his name was Stanley Myron Hamilton. Stanley Myron Hamilton. Hmm, mm -hmm. I had to check he was that like out. a Catskills, very Woody Allen-esque comedian. Yeah. Cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, and I, I think Thank it's you. been a good, interesting conversation. Hopefully, you enjoyed the conversation. I really did. Thank you so much. Well, this has been Stephanie Wilder-Taylor, and I'm mm -hmm. John Edmonds-Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.